immigration has been subjected in the last few years to a lot of tarnishing, a lot of abuse. We mustn't allow the idea of immigration to fall into disrepair. Without immigration, America will, will wilt. Hello and welcome to Why America, the immigration podcast. My name is Tim Kane. I'm the J.P. Conte Research Fellow in Immigration Studies at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. We aim to explore with this podcast the reasons why so many millions of foreign migrants choose to come to the United States and to take an oath of citizenship, a process that is both a testament to diversity, but also to a cultural confirmation of American values. Our guest today is Tunku Varadarajan. Tunku was born in Delhi, India. He attended Trinity College, Oxford, from which he graduated with a Bachelor of Arts degree in law in 1984. He began his illustrious career in journalism at the Times of London in the early 1990s, then moved to New York in 1997 as the paper's bureau chief. In 2000, Varadarajan joined the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal under its editor, Robert L. Bartley. He worked there as a senior editorial writer, deputy editorial features editor, chief television and media critic, and for five years as the paper's editorial features op-ed editor. In recent years, he's been at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University as the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Research Fellow in Journalism, and he continues to pen a major weekend column for the Wall Street Journal. He is currently a fellow at the NYU Law School Classical Liberal Institute. Tunku is married to Amy Finnerty, and together they have three children. They live in New York. Tunku, welcome to Why America. Thank you, Tim. Thank you for having me. Oh, yeah, of course. So, you know, we've been colleagues for and, and friends for years, but um, I'm so proud to have you on this. And I want to mention up front that you uh, not only do you have a weekend column at uh, WSJ.com, but you're a pretty active Twitter user at uh, at T-U-N-K-U-V. So um, <laughs> I guess I should start off. How do you how do you find Twitter? Well, Twitter is my release valve. And uh it allows me to talk about the things that the journal won't let me write about, like cricket. So it's a kind of which is which is which is uh, my favorite uh, sport. But uh, I love Twitter because it keeps me informed. It allows me to have a slightly kind of mischievous and irreverent and occasionally combative voice. And it's also where I get um, most of my news from. You have twenty seven point seven thousand followers, and. 434 people that you're following. So who do you get your news from? A variety of sources. I, by the way, I should quickly tell your listeners that 27.5 thousand followers is paltry. You know, that, that I'm a minnow compared to the people who've got millions and millions. Uh, I get my news source, my news, you know, I follow uh, many of the obvious publications. You know, I follow the Journal, I follow the Times, I follow Politico, I follow the British newspapers, I follow all the cricket publications, I follow various pundits, you know, Andrew Sullivan, David Frum, you know, I don't necessarily agree with everything they say, but I follow a range of publications and pundits and commentators and websites that tweet every time they write something new or break some news, they tweet about it. So I get an alert and I read it. So I don't have to open up uh, the website for each of these uh, organizations and troll through their output to see what's worth following and what's not. So it's 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 a form of curation. It's a form of uh, having people fillet your news for you, in, in, as it were, in advance. It's, it's been amazing to me as a Twitter user and, and mostly lurking passively and reading 
but you can really shape the quality of uh, and the and the style of of knowledge that you learn every day by um by pruning your um list so that's been fun well listen i'm going to get us really far afield of the core question and i'm going to use this as a um as a way to talk about immigration with you and your experience uh coming to the united states but also, I think a lot of people are just interested in you. So we're going to ask some questions about, you know, you personally and your journey. But Tunku, I'll give you the floor at the beginning. Um, okay. Will you answer the question of the, which is the title of our podcast? Why did you choose to come to America? Well, I think uh, the true answer is I, I was chosen by my employer to come to America. <laughs> and that, that was really the initial propulsion. Uh, I was working for the Times of London as their Madrid bureau chief, and they decided that they wanted me to cover a bigger field and sent me from Madrid, which I really loved. You know, the food was delicious and, and the women were lovely and the and the music was wonderful. And I came to New York where the story was great. And so I came to New York and was immediately enchanted by, by the city uh, and by the country that lay beyond the city. I had, in fact, been to America as a boy. You know, I, I came here first when I was all of two years old. Two years. My, do you, and do you remember that? You know, uh, with a combination of uh, family anecdotes and photographs that kind of prompt the memory in, in, in funny sorts of ways. I, I do have, you know, a series of, you know, what the pompous newspaper caption writers call vignettes. So I have a kind of series <laughs> of vignettes in my mind of of things, you know, pictures that I imagine of Central Park and the lobby of the building and friends in school. And, and Tunku, you had, uh, this is because of your father, and he was a diplomat, is that correct? He was a diplomat uh, of a commercial variety. He was working for the government of India as part of their push at the time to interest Americans, particularly the American, big American department stores in Indian uh, textiles and, and handlooms. So my father came in a sort of diplo commercial capacity to to work with the sort of big American designers and department stores, you know, people like Bloomingdale's. So he was, he forged a close relationship with Marvin Traub, who was then chairman of Bloomingdale. So, so yes, we came there. My father was working for the Indian government and we lived on the Upper East Side uh, for four and a half, five years. And India in that era, we're, we're talking in the, um, in the 1970s, I think. And uh, uh, since no, 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 I'm much older than that. Uh, 1964 was when I came. Oh, so India is very socialist then. Yes, it was. In, India wasn't just very socialist. It was only 17 years old as an independent nation. So it was uh, socialist. It was un, underconfident. It was uh, overawed of the outside world. It was a place that didn't really have that much contact with the outside world, having having been burned by it, as, it, as many Indians saw it, by its contact with British imperialism. So uh, yeah, it was a very, very different India. There were no Indians in New York, for instance, at the time. Oh, wow. My mother would be stopped on the streets. She used to wear a sari, and she would be stopped on the streets by New York women and said, and asked, where did you, darling, where did you get that lovely outfit made? <laughs> okay. So now back to your life story. You're a little kid. You're in the Upper East Side. I don't know my New York accents very well, but that's not a Brooklyn accent you have, Tunku. It sounds a little more British. <laughs> Uh, it's Staten Island. Actually, no, I'm kidding. It's 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 a combination of um, Anglophone Indian and Britain. You know, I moved to Britain at the age of 15 and a half, 16. My father, again, was sent to London as a diplomat. He had a couple of very good postings, as you can see. And so um, I was young and lived in Britain from that time 
until I was 35. And so I guess over time you acquire the, as part of the process of integration, if you like, acquire the sounds and cadences of the people in whose midst you live. And so, yes, I guess my accent was the result of that experience. So, but Tanku, your family didn't stay in London. Uh, you did. Is that right? Correct. Uh, my, my, my father finished his five-year posting in London and went back to New Delhi. My uh, brother and I stayed on. My, I have a younger brother who's a journalist in New Delhi, and we stayed on to complete our education. Uh, I was at Oxford University, and he was at the London School of uh, Economics. And um, I just decided after I graduated that I wanted to stay on. I liked England. I, I liked living in Oxford. And so I stayed on and became a British citizen. You, oh, you said British citizen. And then I, the anecdote I love of yours, we're going to get to later, is about your, your uh, journey to America and um, being a green card holder. So, But we'll come back to that because I I visited Oxford just recently and, and it's just so gorgeous. Now, you and I have spent time on Stanford campus, which I'd say hands down is the, the most beautiful campus in the world. But Oxford really was wonderful. And I'm not sure I would ever want to leave Oxford. Yeah, I, I and I, I was sure I didn't want to. Um, you know, I, I graduated with my law degree, and then, and and luckily, with a with a stroke of luck, I got a job teaching as a lecturer in law at the university, and taught for five years. And 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 you know, I had I not made a decision at the age of thirty to quit uh, academia and become a journalist, I would probably still be there. You know, s- sitting in my tenured armchair, um, <laughs> doing doing very little. <laughs> You probably have people, I mean, you've been so successful. You have this great column on Saturdays and I get questions like this, but you're, you're a much bigger star. So do, do um, young journalism students come to you and say, how can I make a career like you've made? What's your advice when you get that question? My first response is don't. Uh, My first response is think hard before you commit yourself to journalism, because Journalism today isn't the journalism that it was when I started back in 1990, which was already not the journalism it was when people uh, started back in 1980. So it's it's been a constantly changing um, profession, not always changing for the better, uh, certainly not changing for the better in terms of financial opportunities. There are, there are many more publications that exist because the web has expanded publications and, and, and forums uh, incredibly. and, and and yet, uh, financial opportunities have shrunk drastically. You know, you, there are many more places that you can write for now, but there are not many more places that you can write for for money now. So I often tell tell people who want to be journalists, you have to be sure you have to you have to love journalism. You have to love the idea of journalism. You have to be resilient. You have to be prepared to not live well for long stretches of your life. And you might also contemplate uh, the possibility of having other sources of income. The one thing I fear about American journalism now is that it is peopled largely by, especially at the younger end of the scale, by people who come from comfortable family homes where the income from journalism isn't their only source of material welfare. And so, you know, I I do think there's a very high um, upper middle class skewing of journalism now because these are all the kids of parents who can afford to subsidize their living, whether it's in the form of paying for their rent in New York City or giving them some kind of monthly stipend to supplement their meager salaries. So that's resulted in a skewing of 
the understanding of America, I would say, because a lot of people are in journalism now who have no idea how real Americans live. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it, there, and there is controversy about that. Well, let's let's return, though, to this story of immigration. And in particular, you did choose at some point to get a green card, right? You could have been here and worked uh, for the Journal or for the Times. Um, how, how did that transition happen? Well, um, look, I came to New York in 1997 uh, by, I, I soon after met the woman who uh, would become my wife. Uh, you mentioned, you know, Amy is her name. She's, her parents are from North Carolina and she was born in New York uh, and, and raised in New Jersey. I keep telling her to say that she's from North Carolina and not from New Jersey because it sounds better. But uh, <laughs> I, I uh, so I met Amy, we got married. And uh, when it was time for the Times to send me back to London, I was, I was married and Amy, uh, it was a question of, moving to London with Amy or staying with Amy in New York. And since Amy had two young children, uh, my who became my stepdaughters, we decided to stay in New York. So I, we got married and I applied for a green card on the basis of uh, the fact that we were married. And, and also because, you know, we had decided that we wouldn't make our joint lives in New York City. So I, you know, it wasn't just a, a green card because I was getting married to Amy. It was a green card because part of that decision involved deciding that my future and my life lay in the United States. And so it was really a, a declaration that I was committing to this country. You told me a, an anecdote that I want to make sure we don't lose, which was you were confronted once by um, one of the immigration authorities. I forget which airport it was, at JFK, who, yeah. who said you've had a green card for nearly two decades and you haven't become a citizen. What was it? What's wrong with you? Why not? And was it yeah. a, there's a rough interrogation? No, not at all. You know, I, look, I, I still have a green card. I'm, I regard myself as, as a, a, you know, American in in every respect except my actual passport. I was, uh, I've, I'd flown into JFK from I can't remember where. It was possibly Madrid, possibly London, and as you say, the guy who was scanning my passport said, uh, you know, I can't do the American accent, but I'll try. <laughs> you know, you know, he said, sir, um, you you've had a green card for uh, you know nineteen years three months and 27 days, why aren't you citizen? And I said, are you allowed to ask me that question, sir? And he said, sir, I can ask you anything I want, <laughs> uh, which I'm not sure is true, but I wasn't about to argue with him uh, over. And so I That's said, why. well, yeah. <laughs> so I said, the answer to your question is, uh, in a word, inertia. And so he, I'm not sure he he, he appreciated the, the sort of meaning of that, uh, I don't want to do him down. I'm not a snobbish person. But it was not the answer he expected. Uh, he didn't expect a, a kind of one-word answer that, that was based somehow in physics. Yeah. So uh, so I just said inertia. He looked at me, stamped my passport, and gave it back to me, and off I went. But, uh, yeah, I, I think it, that, that was an anecdote that stayed with me because it was an example of an American official asking me why I hadn't become American. You know, in many, country, in many countries, you, you go there and the, the passport, the first question you're asked at the passport point of entry is, why are you here? What are you doing here? What do you want with, what do you want with us? When are you intending to leave? Are you sure you're going to leave? <laughs> this is if you're a foreigner. But here was a man saying, uh, why aren't you, you know, almost indignantly, why aren't you American? Why aren't you permanent? Yeah, make it permanent. Wonderful, wonderful. And, and uh, that is one of the quirks of our code. You, you know, you, you're a taxpaying uh, member of our society. You get Social Security. But I, I hear what you're saying about inertia. It's like, why not? Although, you, were you in New York on 9-11, Tunku? Oh, uh, for sure. I was. And I was literally 
20 minutes away from going to work, which would have been at the Wall Street Journal, uh, at the World Financial Center, which was right next to the World Trade Center. Oh, wow. So, so had I gone to work at the usual time that I would have gone to work, I would have been in the building when the World Trade Center, in, in an adjacent building when the plane hit uh, oh. WTC. But as it happens, I was late that day because my son, who was then a, a little over two, was going to start going to kiddie school at the local church school in in a couple of weeks. And they had the system where his teacher would pay a home visit before the child went to school so that the child would then go to school and meet a familiar figure. And so we were at home with the teacher who was paying my son a home visit that morning with the television on when we saw the planes hit the building. And of course, the teacher uh, started to weep because her fiancé was in one of the buildings. Oh, my and so this this uh, event, which was supposed to reassure my son that he was going to go into a safe environment, turned into a bit of a fiasco when he saw when he saw his teacher burst into tears. But it was it was an it was fascinating. You know, we we then spent the next half an hour kind of with our arms around this lady, hugging her and telling her that everything would be fine. And I think mercifully, her fiance was found. But yes, oh, I was wow. very 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 much in in Brooklyn Heights on, and then we all went to the promenade minutes later to watch the smoke, and it was it was indelible. So, Tunku, I wrote about this in my forthcoming book, um, The Immigrant Superpower, and I was surprised at how quickly people mischaracterized the um, terrorists that day as immigrants because they were visitors. And we have we have 100 million plus visitors to the U.S. every year that come in as students. Um, not one of them was was an immigrant. And in fact, the technical term um, used by the U.S. government is non-immigrants, right? These are non-immigrant visas. So, and yet, on the other hand, there were dozens and dozens of, of immigrants who had become citizens, who were green card holders, doing research on cancer that were all killed. I mean, immigrants were attacked on 9-11, um, not just foreign-born people that were visiting, but people that had become Americans and, and born in Delhi and, and born um, in France or born in Africa. And that's something that you experienced and I'm sure was part of the uh, aftermath of 9-11 as well. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Look, I'm I'm not going to dignify some of the reactions uh, after 9/11 with, with with careful attention. Um I think ignorance needs to be treated with contempt. But I think uh your other point which is, you know, the point about the people killed. Uh, you just have to go to the memorial uh on uh, near Ground Zero and look at the lists of names of people who died in in the terrorist attack. They're not all called Smith and Brown and Kane and 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 Giuliani, you know, they're called all kinds of things from all all parts of the world. You know, they're Indian names, they're Chinese names, they're Malay names, they're African names, they're Arab names, they're Hispanic names galore. And these are all um, either American citizens, we have no way of telling, uh, or people who had chosen to make their lives in America. In other words, they were all either immigrants or descendants of immigrants. And they were targeted and killed. Um, I don't think the terrorists on non-immigrant visas were particularly uh, careful uh, uh, about targeting American citizens. They were targeting the buildings as a symbol of, of, of the evil Satan, as they saw it. But yeah, I think I think this country, I like your phrase, immigrant superpower. It's a wonderful phrase, and I hope it, I hope it catches on, because that is such a wonderful way to describe this country. Well, and, and from Oxford University Press, so I hope that'll, that'll make your old institution proud. I'm sure it will. <laughs> so... You, when you and I had done a pre-interview, you said you couldn't imagine living anywhere else than America. Why is that? 
Well, I, that, it has both a practical and a philosophical response. Uh, practical and, and, and the, the less interesting, and I say that because my wife isn't in the room, is because <laughs> my, my, wife, my wife is American and, and she is committed to living here because her children all live here also my children. And so living somewhere else, uh, unless we decided to take the radical step of living thousands of miles away from the kids, would just not happen. She'd put her foot down. So that's one reason why. But the the more important reason is, you know, I love this country. I love living here. It has treated me uh, much better than any other country I've lived in, including my own, India. Uh, It has afforded me opportunities that uh, I don't think I would get as an immigrant or an incomer or a settler or an expat in any other country in the world. I uh, find this country exciting because it's open to ideas, not just open to them, but really a a kind of cauldron and a creator of ideas. I like its politics. I I don't like the way it resolves its presidential elections, but I like, you know, I like its politics. I like its people. I like the mix. I like the, the unpredictability, the cultural the cultural variety. I mean, stop me when you. I'm, I'm sounding like a kind of. A kind no, of, it's great. I, although it's funny you bring up the. I've I've always been a fan of the Electoral College. Love the Electoral College. Even developed my own you know board game with one of my daughters about competing in the Electoral College. What I don't like, Tunku, is the fact that presidential debates haven't had a mute button for the last eight years. You know, that's that's the big in, institutional transformation that's been unhealthy. I think. Yeah, I don't. I, I think. I, I'm sorry. I, I hope I didn't uh, give the, give you the wrong impression. I I like the electoral college too, and I do like. I, I see the point of it, and I see I see why we have it. I mean, you don't want uh, heavily populated states which skew one way and will only ever skew one way politically to override the political inclinations of of smaller states that are just as important in the in the mix of America and in in America's kind of idea and identity so i I, I like that it was it, it, the electoral college is a thing of genius um, i i was I was being much more kind of impressionistic I just don't like the way that President Trump is prolonging the agony of this particular election and and really kind of making a mockery of what should otherwise be a dignified transition. Uh, you know, he he's perfectly within his rights and was within his rights to challenge the result in the courts. Uh, but right now it's now it's now become a kind of spitting match. It's not it's not it's not dignified. Oh, no. And 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 here here this is why I, I feel I'm entitled to talk about it as an immigrant, because it's one of the things people come to America to get away from. To get away from get away from politicians who refuse to step away from power, to get away from politicians who who kind of provoke baying crowds. It's what you see in India and Brazil and Peru and Burkina Faso and in Romania and you know, it's not it's not what you come to America for. So it's that's why I think Trump is behaving in a very un American way. Yeah. I well I was surprised and this behavior, you know, has some precedent, and I hope we can stop it. But after the 2000 election, which was very close, uh, and the Gore campaign was actively trying to destroy military ballots that had come in without signatures, which was legal under federal law, and it was—it's a technical issue, but it was just such a bitter contest over Florida and this notion that, you know, well, we won the popular vote. I mean, there are, there are baseball teams that, you know, score the most runs in the World Series, but they, they don't win four games. You need to win four of seven. And you know, the same rule applies to the Electoral College. They knew that, but they couldn't let go of the bitterness. And so w- there, there's been this increasing sense of 
let's contest the election and let's point out things that are really materially irrelevant. But look, maybe this one will be have been so ridiculous that it will uh, put a stop to it. But I think you and I would agree it would really help to have the elections counted within 24 hours in all these states, not prolonged for, you know, seven days or however long it's been. Yeah, I agree. I mean, if India can count and and account for and declare its election results uh, in, in the space of two days, India would, you know, 1.3 billion people, surely, and you know, and and let's uh, and let's admit, uh, much less technologically and materially advanced than this country is. Uh, there's no reason why the United States, which is the world's most powerful and technically savvy country, can't do it. And so, so it's inexcusable. If one good thing comes out of this current uh, kind of circus, I, I hope it is some kind of reform in, in the manner in which I think we need a kind of a grand national conversation about about balloting and counting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there can be some certainty on, on election night. But let me let me go back. So you first visited it, came to America and lived here for you know years, two years old. Half a century later, you say there's nowhere else I'd want to be. But has America changed in those 50 years, Tunku? Oh, certainly. You know, look, I, I, I don't remember what America was like when I was here in 1964, 65, uh, it, other than through having read about those times subsequently. But America certainly changed. I can tell you about the America of 1997, which is when I came, and the America of 2020, which is what, where we are now, which is 23 years. That's, that's, that's a perfectly good sample span. Sure. Um, and I think it's changed significantly. It's become a much more divided place. Uh, I think it probably was always much more divided than people romantically like to th- think it was. But it's become a place where divisions are more easily and readily and coarsely expressed, uh, a place where divisions aren't expressed in chivalrous and civilized ways as they used to be, even in 1997. And and the reasons for this aren't that Americans suddenly went um, overnight from being these courtly chivalrous people to being these um, punch-throwing oiks. Uh, it's it's a question of uh, having access to forums, the internet in particular, which allows people to express their opinions in unfiltered ways, often without any need for a, a few minutes reflection. So I think we've had we've 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 gone from being a country that expressed its disagreements in ways that were manageable and conversational to a country that doesn't really disagree. Uh, it fights, and so it's it's. It's that that I note. I, I'm not one of those people who says, oh, if only we could rewind and go back to the good old days. No, I think we, we are where we are. And we just have to find ways of expressing ourselves in, in, in more um, citizenly ways, if I can coin a phrase, as a sort of civic. We need, we need a return to the sort of the, the civic understanding that we are living amidst people with whom we will have disagreements and we've got to find a way to live with them. And do you still think America is as strongly the land of opportunity? Oh, yes, I, I do. It is and always will be. Uh, you know, I always tell people, look, this is the only, you, you, you stop on any main street. Let's pretend every city in, 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 in every country in the world has a main street. Okay. You stop, you, stop, you stop at the traffic lights on the main street with a sign up saying, the first 10 people who, who shake my hand get to, get to live in America. You'll find that the person with this placard will be mobbed in seconds. <laughs> so, you know, um, and, I, and this wouldn't just be in kind of Ouagadougou or Dhaka or Lagos or Rio de Janeiro. It would be in Lisbon. It would probably be in Madrid. It would probably be in Dublin. I suspect the only countries where this wouldn't happen, 
I dare say, are probably France and Scandinavian countries. I'm not even sure about Germany. I think many Germans would like to come and live in this country. So who knows? Many French too. I mean, I live I live in a, a borough of Brooklyn where uh, the second language is French. You know, yeah. there are lots of lots of French expats, and it's not the Haitians who are speaking it. It's it's mostly white French expats who've come to live in New York and to work in New York, Wall Street, tech sectors, other things like that. And uh, they there's a reason they're here and not in Marseille or Montpellier yeah. or Paris. Yeah. That I have to say that did surprise me, Tunku, when I lived abroad. Um, how how I became more attuned to some of the virtues of the United States, but it was particularly when I got into the tech sector, and there there were a, a lot of the tech companies were founded by immigrants. They weren't founded by Americans, and uh, there were some French entrepreneurs that had come here, and the interviews with them really opened my eyes. Where they said, "Well, I I would have." you know, love to start a company in, in France, but it was just so hard. And here, snap of the fingers, and there's a whole ecosystem of entrepreneurialism that's vibrant and I, I think remains vibrant. Yeah. I, the difference is that in America, if you want to start a company, it's seen as your right to do so. Whereas in places like France, uh, you have to demonstrate why you should be allowed to do so. And, and it's simple as that. You know, going back to my point about people wanting to come here, it reminds me of a joke, possibly an old cliche joke, that my dear old friend, the late Fouad Ajami, who was a colleague of ours at, at the Hoover Institution for many years, told me once, uh, which he said, you know, when he was in Baghdad, and he <laughs> he said in Iraq, he said to him, uh, this is during the American occupation of Iraq, and in Iraq, he said to him, the, the slogan here is, America, get out and take me with you. <laughs> so <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you you may have heard that one before, but it yeah. it, it, it has its resonance. Yeah. The, the, and I think you might illustrate this. The definition of monopoly has changed, certainly in the public consciousness. But bad monopoly was when you would go and ask the king or queen of England, you know, could I have control of all the cotton imports? That was a monopoly. You had, a, you know, a royal monopoly. And now it's meant you're just so darn successful that you've dominated a, a sector. But we don't tend to think in America of needing to ask the government for permission to start a business. As you, you, what did you call it? It's our, it's our right to start it. It's one of the rights to start a business. Exactly. You know, you, the difference. You know, there's a difference between grant being granted a monopoly and coming to monopolize something uh, through the market, through your successes in the market. You know, I'm not one of those who believes that. Uh, you know, an organic market resulting monopoly is always a good thing. I think there are times when that. We, we could argue isn't. But I think I'd much rather live in a country where, where monopolies emerge organically in the market through the successful business practices of the company that comes to monopolize the sector than one in which uh, some kind of crony money bags is granted a monopoly over tea or cotton or education or, or, or motor vehicles as, as happened in the, uh, in, in the Europe of old or it still happens in many, many countries in the world. And Mr. People talk about Carlos Slim being the richest man in the world. I, I, I've always said he's the richest monopolist in the world. All right, Tunku, we're going to shift now to what, what you and I t- discussed, which is the rapid fire questions. And this is the part of the podcast where I'm going to ask you some things that will hopefully illuminate your worldview, but also give our listeners insights into your uh, personality a bit. And, and maybe you've got some answers ready. We'll try to get through them quickly, but I'm afraid you're probably going to say too many interesting things and we'll stop and talk about them. All right. I'll try. I'll try to be as brief as possible. All right. Here we go. You ready? Yes. Okay. How many brothers and sisters do you have? One of each. Favorite movie in the past few years? Uh, can I say two? Sure. Um, 
The Lives of Others, which is a German movie uh, set in Stasi-era East Germany. And uh, I'm afraid to say My Cousin Vinny. <laughs> that's a great movie. I love that. But I haven't seen The Lives of Others, so that's wonderful. Thank you. Favorite musician? Ooh, Bob Dylan. Oh, wow. Okay. So you and Steve Jobs. Yeah. <laughs> um, how about when you were young? Favorite musician when you were a teenager? Oh, if we were to go slightly younger than that, um, Harry Belafonte. Okay, good, good. All right, what's now? What this is a fun question. What's the first place in the United States that you visited? New York City. New York. And what is your first impression, Tunku? Um, I'll give you my first impression when I came back here as a as an adult at okay. the age of 30, 35. My first impression was, I'm not going to say people are driving on the wrong side of the road. My first impression was how much choice there was. You know, buying a sandwich took five minutes because you were asked, you know, which rye, whole wheat, plain white, lettuce, mayo, mustard, tomato, toasted, plain, blah, blah, blah. You know, you said cheese, they said American, Swiss, Carlsberg, Yalsberg, you know. <laughs> so yes, choice. One oh, word, that's choice. Nice. What's, the, what's your favorite place that you visited in the United States? That's a tough one. Um, I would say... Pauly's Island in South Carolina. Ah, okay. And where have you not visited yet that your you and Amy would still like to go to? I don't know about Amy, but I'd like to go to Las Vegas. Oh, you haven't been to Las Vegas? I have not, alas. That's that's a crime. You've had... I've been I've been to Reno, Nevada, which is the poor man's Las Vegas. <laughs> it's, I love Reno too, but Vegas is a sight to see. And in fact, I feature it. I have a chapter on it in the book, Tanku. Vegas had a century ago, there were 22 people in Vegas. Uh, and now there are 2.2 million. I mean, this is a city that is the story of immigration. Most of it's domestic, but it's just amazing. You've got to go. Ve- yeah, Vegas sums up America in, in so many ways. All right. So, um, what's more fun to watch basketball, football, baseball, or soccer? And you can't say cricket. <laughs> soccer, hands down. Okay. Oh, do you have a team? My son's gotten me into Premier League, so we're we're Chelsea fans now because they have an American player on the team. Uh, Real Madrid. Oh, wow. All right. All right. Getting a little bit more serious. What historical figure do you admire the most? Does it have to be American or general? You can give us two answers. American, I admire um, Abraham Lincoln. Okay. And uh, more broadly, uh, I admire a guy called a guy, an Indian emperor called Ashoka, uh, who uh, was, I think, in second century BC, who slaughtered his foes after winning a, a battle and then converted to a nonviolence. So if, are you modeling your career on Ashoka here? I should have be concerned. <laughs> I'm trying to model my career on Abraham Lincoln. Okay. Good to hear. <laughs> now, you're so steeped in, in American history, and Abraham Lincoln is you know, an insightful choice for a lot of reasons. He was wonderful in immigration. But in the 20th century, let's limit ourselves to that. Who would you say is the, the uh, president you admire the most? I'm going to be slightly offbeat and not say the obvious things. Eisenhower, I think. Mm-hmm. I like that. I like. I, I would have liked to live in, in in the comforting aura and presence of an Eisenhower would be so wonderful right now. Yeah, I think he's uh, getting a well-deserved resurgence in some of the uh, greatness rankings. You've see, seen his reputation rise really considerably. What's the book that changed your life or maybe had the most biggest impact? This is a slightly quirky answer. Um, it, it, it probably not 
one that you or any of the listeners would expect. It, it's a book called Veinte um, Poemas de Amor by Pablo Neruda, 20 love poems, uh, because I kind of read that with a Spanish dictionary in college, and it basically persuaded me that I had to learn the Spanish language. And I'm now fluent in Spanish, and it's the language I love most in the world. And so that, I, I think, changed my life, yes. Oh, my goodness. That's impressive. Now, how do we how do we spell uh, Neru's last name here? N- N- Neruda, N E R U D A, Pablo Neruda. Neruda. All right. How about mo- recent books? What's the What's the most recent book that you feel very passionately about recommending? Again, I'm going to I'm going to go back because I have reread them, and these are other books that affected me when I was. They affected me when I was younger. Uh, there's a book called uh, The Confessions of Felix Krull, K R U L L, by Thomas Mann. Uh, which I, I I really recommend. I think the two books, apart from the Neruda book, that that have most affected me are this book, The Confessions of Felix Rule, and uh, Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky. They're both books that raise very testing moral questions and and not necessarily easy ones. And I would say that I've re- I, I reread both books recently. The last time I'd read them was when I was sort of fourteen or fifteen. So it was. I would say, you know, no man or woman should go through life without having read those two books. Felix Krull is more of a man's book, but I think Crime and Punishment is definitely one that everyone should read. Tunku, this raises a question about, you were in the States when you were two years old. When did you leave that first time? How old were you? I was about six. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, I was going to ask what books maybe were important to you. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. And one of the most important, um, Green Eggs and Ham. Really? (laughs) <laughs> Dr. Seuss, that book is the most, I think is the most important children's book uh, ever written almost. Oh, I see. I would I would have to go with Where the Wild Things Are. I'm, I'm surprised. Oh, that, that that's close too. No, no. I mean, Where the Wild Things Are is an act of kind of, is a book of, of unparalleled visual imagination. I mean, the combination of the words and the, and the images are just wonderful and stunning. The man was a genius. But Green Eggs and Ham, you know, when a child reads that or has that read to him, at a, at a young age, it's the best book to get people to fall in love with words. And and it's just, it's brilliant. Dr. Seuss was perhaps one of the most brilliant Americans in history. And and that book was just, it's not just about words, you know, it, it the message, I don't know how well you know your green eggs and ham, but it's about a man being offered food that he spurns simply because he doesn't like the look of it. He doesn't try it. He just says, no, he doesn't like green eggs and ham. Huh. And then the salesman, then it's about salesmanship. You know, Sam Ayan goes after him trying to sell it in different ways and then finally persuades him to try it. And then he likes it. And so it's about, it's, it's about being open-minded. It's about salesmanship. It's about taste, preference, choice. Oh, it's wonderful. You're so much more thoughtful than I am. I remember liking it, but uh, that, that's, that, I think you're right. You know, you read into what's happening with the story. It's, it's really profound. All right. We're, uh, again, a more serious question. America's Seems to have changed, but if you pitted two of our most popular presidents, which one wins, Reagan or Bill Clinton? I think uh, I can't. I think it's a tie because for right now we we could use either of them. We could use we could certainly use Reagan to restore uh, the American right and American conservatism to a kind of area of principle and humanity, and we could certainly use Bill Clinton to restore the American left to uh, uh, you know an area of non anti-democratism, non-wokeism. So both the extremes on, on the left and the right are imperiling what, what, what I think is precious in America. And I think uh, on both sides, Reagan 
on the right and Clinton on the left, the center left. Reagan was really center right in many ways. I mean, if you listen to him on immigration, if you listen to him on so many other things, Reagan would be <laughs> scorned by many kind of Republicans today as being a wuss. And so I think, um, and and Clinton would would not even belong to the Democratic Party today. So it's it's I, I so I would like a president called Bill Reagan or Ronald. <laughs> oh my gosh! Uh, now I'll tell you. I have always cherished the the view of conservatism as as Reaganism, and it's maybe the generation I come from, Tunku. But he would say, I'm sure that you know, being extremely pro-immigration was conservatism. This is a party at the time that believed in freedom, free trade, free movement of people, free markets, less regulation, less you know, asking permission to do things. If somebody was qualified to come into America, he wanted to move. To that world, and he spoke about it even in his farewell address, as I recall. Yeah, absolutely, free markets. You know, when I joined the Wall Street Journal editorial page, I was hired by a, a, a wonderful man, no longer with us, may he rest in peace, called Robert L. Bartley. I think you mentioned him earlier in in, your, in the podcast. He hired me. He believed in free markets and free people. That's the credo of of, of the editorial page of the journal, for whom I write. And and Reagan really embodied that. As, as an American president. And absolutely, I can't agree with you more. I think true conservatism is about extending opportunity to the meritorious and to the deserving. Not denying opportunity is the biggest sin in conservatism. And I think, and the American brand of conservatism, I think it varies from country to country. I think German conservatism or British conservatism or French conservatism is, is markedly different from American conservatism. And I think uh, I think that the conservatism in this country, which is more akin to libertarianism, is based on the wealth, the material opportunity, on material opportunity for people. And I think Reagan believed in that passionately. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But he, I can't imagine anyone trying to lecture Ronald Reagan that you're not a real conservative. <laughs> Because you think because because immigrants steal jobs. And then I, I know he was so much smarter than people give him credit for. So Ronald Reagan would have said, that's not how things work. We're a country of constant movement and dynamism and et cetera. Yeah, I think Reagan, Reagan would have responded by pointing out how immigrants create jobs. And so in many cases, and they don't just take, they don't just take them. Now, I, so you, but this notion of I think we could both agree that conservatives tend to be at least they say they believe more deeply in the constitution that they're originalists and they want to they want to return to uh, that that constitutional vision is that fair to say tunku i think uh patriotic americans on the left would would profess to be just as constitutionally faithful as those on the right i i wouldn't answer i wouldn't respond to your question in those terms what i would say is that both sides have a different vision of the constitution and what it stands for uh, i think certainly you're right to say that Conservative Americans are would tend to be originalists. Uh, they would tend to adhere more to the word of the Constitution, to the words in the Constitution. Socialist or progressive or liberal or democratic Americans would tend to see the Constitution as being a living document that responds to change in society. Some on the right may say that that is being unconstitutional, that may well be true in certain cases. Uh, the left would see would see it as as treating the constitution differently. Um, it's a bit like the Bible, you know. Do you, you know? I think the Bible, comparisons between the Bible and the constitution, or to or to to pull another textbook out of thin air, you know, the Quran, 
to what extent do you, and, and I'm not a Muslim, I'm a Hindu, but the debates around the Quran are very similar to the debates that once took place around the Bible and that in a way take place around the American Constitution. You know, how how faithful should you be to the actual words? And when is it permissible to depart from the actual words? When is it permissible to interpret them broadly? When must you interpret them narrowly? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, when we... We live in a in a in a time when dictionaries change their definitions after you know Supreme Court nomination hearings to determine that something's now offensive that when it was used by the person wasn't offensive. So I think the craziness is getting a little out of hand. But let me frame this as a question, Tunku. Left or right? What's the one thing that you think sh- we should never shake our interpretation of in the Constitution? What's the most fundamental right that uh, is embedded in America? That uh, makes this a great country. Oh, that's easy. Uh, the one, the one right in the Constitution that makes America, America, and makes America different from every single country in the world is the First Amendment. Spoken as a true journalist. <laughs> if if the if the First Amendment was, you know, repealed, it would be a choice between my slashing my wrists or moving to another country. So oh. I, I'm not sure which I would do. But to me, the, America is the First Amendment. Yeah. The First Amendment goes, uh, Congress shall make no law regarding, and it lists a variety of things. But I think you're probably mostly attached to free speech? No, not just free speech. I mean, if you look at the recent decision by the Supreme Court, the 6-3, was it 6-3 or 5-4 about striking down New York State's restrictions on prayer? And I, I think that was based in the First Amendment. It was, you know, I, I wish I had a text of the Constitution in front of me. But I think your podcasters, your listeners can... All they need to do is go check on the on the judgment. It was it Neil Gorsuch's majority judgment? Justice Gorsuch's judgment pretty much sums it all. There were a ver- there was a kind of a, you know a plethora of judgments in that case. Everyone wanted a piece of, of the argument, and why not? But I think that the First Amendment basically allows people to be individuals uh, in in many ways. It, it allows them their speech. It allows them their worship. It allows them their association. It doesn't allow the state to abridge abridge the constituent parts of a person's individuality. It's the First Amendment that allows individuals to be individuals and individual Americans to be individual Americans, which is why this country is really, you know, it's it's a coming together of individuals. It's it's the United States of America, but it's also the United Peoples of America. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. Or the United Citizens of America. I wonder sometimes, Tanku, if if the great genius of American economic power, at least, wasn't an accident that uh, they at the one hand, preserved federalism, and the Electoral College is an example of that. On the other hand, they said states couldn't restrict movement of people between one state and another or free trade and goods or commerce, right? So you, you had all the dynamism of federalism without any of the, um, without giving too much power to states to hold that dynamism back. Right. I, I agree. I, I, I'm going to be boring and say I agree with you 100%. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Then we'll get to the last four questions, which were, were um, you know, this is a new podcast. So you helped me think through what some of these questions should be. And, and so these are yours. And I'm very curious how you're going to answer your own questions. Favorite James Bond? Oh, Sean Connery. And I think you might have mentioned, you might have added this question on the day that we found out uh, that, that Sean Connery had passed away. But it might have even preceded him by a day or two. So... Very timely. And I would agree. So no no controversy here. How about favorite Marx Brothers movie? Oh, um, well, can I say all of them? Oh, I, think, no, okay. uh, I think Duck Soup. Yeah. You know, 
it has to be uh, Duck Soup. The first one I watched was uh, A Night at the Opera, which I watched in a small North Indian, t- a relatively small, now now teeming with seven, eight million strong town called Lucknow, which was uh, the town to which we moved from New York back in 1969 and 70. Back then you had something called the USIS, the United States Information Service. And it was born, it was an attempt, it was, an att- it was a Cold War thing. It was an attempt to counter Soviet propaganda. And back then you had, in, in quasi-socialist India, you had these USIS centers in many Indian cities uh, where they had uh, libraries and film screenings and uh, talks and occasional um, servings of pie and hot dogs. Um, and it was all an, a way to sell a kind of an, an, a kindly face of America. And I remember going there with my brother as a young lad and falling in love with America because we we, we watched a, a, a Night of the Opera. And in many ways, that that is a that is a movie about immigration because it starts with these Italians in a ship coming to New York. Oh wow! And you you'll recall. And so um, no, I, I I saw the Marx Brothers movies quite a bit, and this is thanks to my dad. Um, he he liked them, um, but you know they're just impressionistic now in my memory. So I don't I don't have the details. You may know more about them. Were they immigrants themselves, or were they from immigrant families? You know, no, I don't think the Marx Brothers themselves were immigrants, but in the movie, in in a, in a Night at the Opera, yes, it, it begins with Ital- as Italian immigrants making the crossing. Oh wow! So a lot, a lot of it is set in the sh- in the ship that brought them over. I think one of one of them may have been a stowaway, or they were, may all have been stowaways, but um, I can't remember that particular detail. So it's fascinating. I think uh, I watched, I you know, I watched the entire Marx Brothers over when my son was was young, you know, it was a way to for father and son to sit down and watch movies together. And so I I, I made him watch the sort of entire oeuvre of what I thought were great American movies. And so we watched the Marx Brothers movies and we watched the Spaghetti Westerns and we watched various other things, 12 Angry Men. A Night at the Opera, Tunku, I've just scanned it quickly. And this is the benef- this beauty of the internet and that I could do this in the middle of our interview. It was released in 1935. This is in the wake of the major reforms to immigration policy in 1921-24, which took effect basically as they were putting this movie in production. So I, this might have been a specific response to the yeah. anti-immigrant fervor of that era. And you know what? I mean, and, and Groucho Marx, I, I, you know, I haven't read a good biography of him. I'm sure they exist. But Groucho Marx was, was, was a political man. I mean, he had political views and there's a great song in, I think, uh, Horse Feathers, in which uh, he sings a song as a college principal, which is a bit of a send-up of your average uh, rejectionist conservative. Uh, the strain of the song is, whatever it is, I'm against it. Um, and it's <laughs> worth it's it's worth, it's worth listening to. It's a, I think it's Horse Feathers in which it's, it, it's, it's, it's one of the great kind of <laughs> conservative caricature songs in history. Well, and William F. Buckley would say that it was beautiful, exactly what we should be for. Um, okay, last two, favorite car. Oh, gosh. Um, I don't know how to drive, so this is based entirely on aesthetic grounds. It's the Citroën DS, or DS, which is the most lovely car ever designed by human mind. And favorite scotch? Well, single malt, my favorite scotch would be Lagavulin, the PT, the, that PT beauty. 
But my my standard everyday comfort drink would be Johnny Walker Black Label. Sorry, very demotic, but it's what I grew up drinking. Oh yeah, no, no, that was um, that was a drink that I toasted uh, with my grandfather. Last drink that he was he was able to have. So um, that's oh, a good how choice. Wonderful. Yeah, but I recently had rye and tunku. I have to say, good American rye. I think rivals any. Scotch or, uh, or or vodka. I I put it up with one of the great drinks of the world. All right, now let's turn a little serious. Okay. We have a new president, Joe Biden, and a new vice president. What's your advice uh, on on how President Biden can um, steer the country in terms of immigration policy, or can journalists give advice? Well, I, I'm an opinion journalist, so I'm I'm I do that all the time. So. Uh, I think uh, I don't like it when people who are reporters uh, ostensibly give advice, but uh, at least not when they're writing news stories. But I certainly can, since I don't pretend to be an objective reporter in any way. And so my advice to them would be to uh, restore or work to restore immigration to its rightful place as the crown jewel in, in the idea of America. I think immigration has been subjected in the last few years to a lot of tarnishing, a lot of abuse, a lot of contempt, a lot of falsification, a lot of outright nonsense. And I think uh, what Biden and Harris need to do is to restore luster to the idea, to restore facts to the idea, and to pick it up off the floor, dust it down, and put it back on the topmost shelf and say, look at that. This is our, This is what makes this country great. Without immigration, America would would be tired and spent. I mean, it would find it would find ways to muddle along. But what is it that makes America such a, a kind of vigorous place, such an irrepressible place, such a place always full of fresh ideas? It's the fact that its own native genius is combined constantly uh, with fresh people and ideas and input from from the best of abroad. And so, without immigration, America will will wilt. How do they do it, though, Tunku? You've got a divided Congress. Comprehensive immigration reform has failed uh, disastrously half a dozen times. How do they do it? I look. I, I'm, I'm not sure how. I, I, I'm not sure what uh, I would suggest as a specific policy. I think they have to start with talk. It, obviously, one one term is not going to resolve anything, but they have to start by they have to start with with messaging. It has to be a combination of messaging that reinforces the value of immigration to American society and to American welfare and prosperity, while also reassuring those who've come to believe that all immigration is bad based on their perception that some immigrants are here without the right to be so, and find ways to reassure that cohort of Americans, which I think is honorable at heart and will see reason, as long as they're reassured that a lauding of, of immigration as there should be, should be accompanied also by an enforcement of our laws. So I think I think we need to restore to luster the idea of lawful immigration. And, and the only way you can do it is by stressing that word lawful, as just, just as you stress the word immigration. You can't stress the word lawful and denigrate the word immigration, and you can't exalt the word immigration and erase the word lawful. So I think I think there has to be there has to be a, an emphasis on both the, both of those facets, but 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 we mustn't we mustn't allow the idea of immigration to fall into disrepair. All right, then 
Tunku, the last thing I want to ask you about is we've seen net immigration from Mexico go negative. We, we actually don't have a surge at all of, of Mexican immigration. We haven't for years. We do see a growing amount of Indian immigration to the United States and Chinese as well. And these are two of the most populated countries. So the next few decades are likely to see uh, pressure and an opportunity for America to bring in um, more of the world's best and brightest if we want to. And what do you make of that? Well, there's a reason why, look, uh, a lot of the Indians who come here slot into the niches that that need people. Uh, there's the reason why Mexicans aren't coming in as as great numbers as, as used to is that the areas of employment that absorb them are perhaps not in need of them anymore so much. Um, I mean, immigration is is a kind of market based thing in large measure. Putting to one side the the family reunification side of it, in large measure, it's you know you come. Why would you come to America? You don't come to America because you want to you know snack on Dunkin' Donuts. I mean, you come to America because you you think that America is offering you a chance that you don't have in the country of your origin. You don't just come in search of a random chance. Most immigrants come with some idea of what they can do and what they would like to do, and so. You know, if you look at America and you and you you see you espy the opportunity from afar, and you make calculations, and you make you make a sort of personal ledger of what you can do and what you can't do, and how long it would take you to do it, and what you'd make, and how you could support it. There are all these factors that come into play. Is what network can you tap into? How quickly can you go mainstream? I mean, these are all things that immigrants think about. And so, I guess one advantage that uh, Indians have over some other cultures, I suspect, is that there's a very strong sense of community and network. So, you know, Indians uh, tap into networks of other Im- Indians who have emigrated who have ideas for them about what they can do. I mean, my, my favorite story is how in the space of a couple of generations, um, Indian Americans have come to almost completely take over the uh, motel industry in this country. That is a result of seeing an opportunity and there also being a network in which Indians told other Indians, hey, there's a motel for sale in Texas in in rural Texas, or there's a hotel for sale in Anchorage or whatever, and they and they just go there. But yeah, I I, I think um, I think we're we're going to see. I'd like to see a greater variety of immigration to this country. I'd like to see. Yes, it's nice to have uh, all these Indians and Chinese coming, but I'd like to see people from other countries come too. I'd like to see more Africans. I'd like to see more Europeans. I'd like to see more more other sorts of Asians, more Latin Americans. So I, I, I don't want immigration to be a, a top-heavy Indian and Chinese or Filipino thing. I, I think as an Indian, I can say, let's have some other people too. <laughs> <laughs> well, our family joke was, once you let the Irish in, you know, might as well just let everyone in. <laughs> so we, we, Canes weren't always um, a standard American name, Tunku. But, uh, you know, have been. So, listen, you've been a brilliant guest, a brilliant friend, and appreciate you coming on and, and joining us today with your, your insights. So, Tunku, thank you so much. Not at all. My pleasure. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Why America? The Immigration Podcast with Tunku Vardarajan. Stay tuned for future episodes with guests Chantal Da Silva and Jose Sardui. I'm Tim Kane. And the producer is Ali Giyu. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us and listen to future episodes at whyamericapod.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Timmer Kane. And our guest today was Tunku V. Thanks so much for listening and don't be a stranger. <laughs>